This is Jamin Baxter, and I serve as Business Development Director for Moody Radio. The only reason we're able to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ on the radio is because of financial support from listeners like you. We also have businesses support us too, like United Faith Mortgage. Faith and family is at their core. It's why they choose to be such a close partner with our station. It's why they specifically advertise on Christian radio stations across the country. It's why father and son John and Ryan still lead the company to this day. Check out United Faith Mortgage and their direct lender advantage at unitedfaithmortgage.com. Thanks to you and to United Faith Mortgage for supporting Moody Radio. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. Well, good morning uh, or afternoon if you're in the East Coast. My name is Ed Stetzer. I am your host today. You're welcome to Ed Stetzer Live. So Ed Stetzer Live, of course, is a weekly program. Many and an increasing number of you don't listen on Saturdays, though we're glad those of you do listen live on Saturdays. But you can also, as always, go to the website, edstetzerlive.com, subscribe via podcast, and listen to this uh, asynchronously. We all learn to use words like asynchronously. In the pandemic, with schooling and people taking things online and differently, and it is gives us a freedom to listen whenever we want, and maybe sometimes we are not able to listen on a given Saturday. So I want to invite you to uh, be a part of the ongoing conversation that is at Stetzer Live as well. So uh, my guest today, it's interesting, every, every Saturday, of course, I have this program at this time, and Donna, who is my wife, will say to me, so who do you have on today? And depending upon who I have on, she'll listen live. She also, I think, downloads the podcast. But she'll listen live and talk to me about it afterwards. So when I told her my guest today, she said, oh, she's, she's, she's going to listen live. So this is, it's always a good, I know it's going to be a good show when Donna Stetzer is listening live. I also know I need to be on my best behavior. But that's a, another story for another day. Um, what we're going to talk about today, or who we're going to talk about today, or who we're going to talk with today, all are related. And of course, when you talk about someone's memoir, it's about them, it's about their journey, it's about what they learned uh, on the way as well. So today, we're going to talk with Philip Yancey. Now, for some of you, you immediately recognize that name. And probably like me, there are certain things that you identify with that name. Um, hopefully one of those is, uh, is a book he has written, um, or, or it might be you know, part of something that you read in an article. Uh, he's explored the most basic questions and deepest mysteries of the Christian faith in books like, Where is God When It Hurts? The Jesus I Never Knew, um, and What's So Amazing About Grace? And I should tell you that um, those three books are among many others, but those three were particularly impactful on my life, the life of so many others, his books have received 13 gold medallion awards from Christian publishers and booksellers. And he currently has more than 15 million books in print, published in over 50 languages worldwide. And so we're going to also have, we have a copy of his newest book, which is going to be the focus of our discussion today is Where the Light Fell. It's called Where the Light Fell. And it's a memoir, of course, by Philip Yancey. And we actually have some copies of the book that we're going to give away to, uh, not just not like a book giveaway, but for amazing, insightful callers who bring insightful questions or comments. We're going to, we're going to share some of those as well also. So Philip Yancey, thanks so much for joining us here on Ed Stetzer Live. 
Well, I'm delighted to hear that I passed the Donna test. That's great, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, and and not everybody does. Um, I, I would say okay. a, a quarter to a third. I think she. I, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm believing in my heart that she listens to all of the episodes. But don't tell me otherwise. But I know some she particularly wants to listen to. And I think it was what's so amazing about Grace was I remember seeing it on our nightstand uh, more than once as, you know, I read it, Donna read it, I think read it a couple times. Um, and so we're going to we're gonna kind of talk about some of those things or ultimately going to go to the, the memoir. But I, I think one of the interesting things about you is you seem to write books about questions maybe that we all have, even as Christians. And I'm, I'm assuming that your primary audience has been to Christians. And I want to talk about Correct. your journey. But things like, you know, where's God would hurt? Certainly a question I ask, you know, who is Jesus that Jesus I ever knew? What's so amazing about grace? So tell us a little bit, just if you don't mind, to maybe listeners who don't know you, um, tell us about your journey and, um, you know, early life, because that's a big part of your memoir. And, uh, and, you know, take your time doing it. Let's Let's hear a little bit about Philip Yancey. Well, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a different kind of family. My father died when I was just 13 months old, so I never knew my father. was raised in pretty severe poverty by a widow who was working hard to pay the bills and keep us fed and clothed. We lived in a, in a house trailer, very small, 8 feet wide, 48 feet long, all through high school. And it was actually located on church property. So I was saturated in church, but it wasn't a particularly healthy church environment. It was an angry, fundamentalist, uh, racist church. They actually refused admission to any African-Americans, and this was in the middle of the civil rights movement. So I, I came out of that environment rather confused and uh, believing that the church had really misrepresented things to me. Certainly they misrepresented the truth about race. They misrepresented who God was. I, I had this vision of God as this cosmic bully just waiting to smash people. And it took me quite a while, frankly, to recover and to find a healthy faith. I got a job right away after grad school at Wheaton College, a school you know. And that job was to, to work on Campus Life magazine, which was a Christian youth magazine. And, and I started as a journalist. I learned on the job. My faith got stronger. When I decided to go out and write books on my own, I approached them differently than most books you would see in a Christian bookstore. Often they're done by pastors, by theologians, by experts. I wasn't an expert. I was a journalist. And uh, as it, not only that, I was a, a rather kind of wounded faith journalist. I was suspicious of the church, and I was circling around. Starting out in the margins, my first two books, one you mentioned, Where Is God When It Hurts? The second one was Disappointment with God. And they kind of tell you where I was. I was in the margins trying to figure out, is this whole thing true? Is it worth pursuing? And it was only later, actually decades later, that I came to the place where I could write about uh, central issues to the faith. Who is Jesus? Okay, he's probably not the person that I was taught growing up. So who is he? The Jesus I never knew. And what is this thing called grace? I heard a lot about grace growing up, but it didn't feel much. And uh, the church that I look, now look back on seemed a lot more enamored with law than with grace. So that's my career, really, to work out my faith in public. And I feel privileged to be able to do that. We all have these questions, as you say. They're universal questions. 
But most people have jobs. <laughs> they can't think about those questions all day long. That's my job, to research them, go to people who can help me, and try to come up with some answers to those questions. Yeah, and, and so, and I think it is an interesting place in part, you know, you mentioned Wheaton, of course, my colleagues here will be, you know, scholars and authors and and you you sort of approach these things from your own place of need often and then uh, and then walk through. And like I said, as a, as a journalist, but but why? I mean, have you ever I'm sure you speculate at some point. Why do you think people have so resonated with your writing to the place where millions and millions of people have purchased your books? I think it's because I present myself truth, truthfully as an ordinary person in the pew. I'm not standing up in the pulpit saying, this is what you need to believe. I'm a person sitting there thinking, I don't know if I can believe this or not. And especially with my background, I had a lot of reasons to be suspicious and skeptical. And I tend to bend over backwards toward the person who is skeptical, a little unsure. I learned that early on when you work for a teenage magazine. That's the best training ground for for a writer because... They're looking for an excuse to stop reading. So you have to interest them through stories, through something that really hits right to the heart. And in my writing, I try to do that. Uh, often idea-driven books are rather dry. They're logically constructed. Because I had that experience in working for a magazine, I, I build my book with stories. I try to I try to pull the reader along with a with a force like gravity, you got to keep reading. You got to keep reading, you know, using suspense, anything I know. So I'm not really lecturing. I'm exploring. I'm trying to find my way through a jungle thicket, you know, slashing away with my machete, trying to figure out does prayer really work after all questions like that. And then I look behind me and I, and I find there are other people who are on the same path that I've just cleared with my machete. And they say, thank you for clearing the way. Well, I wasn't really thinking about them. I was thinking about myself. How in the world can I answer this question? How can I come up with a solution? And uh, I guess because I do take that slant of an ordinary person facing these universal questions, people do respond. Yeah. And and here, a memoir. And it's uh, a memoir is often written by somebody looking back. Uh, and you can certainly do that. It's it's hopefully memoirs aren't written by twenty nine year olds. So you have some you know, right. longevity and wisdom that comes from from that as well. What what brought you to and just to remind everybody um, what what we're talking about here. Particularly, we're looking around the issue of uh, Philip Yancey's new memoir. It's called Where the Light Fell. Why a memoir? I have a I have some stories in my background that I've never told before. I've kind of stewarded them, just kept them on the shelf. And only now do I understand why I wrote the things I did and why I've been so obsessed with certain themes. The themes that appear in most of my books are the question of suffering, why bad things happen, how do we handle suffering, what's God's role in that, and the question of grace. What is it? How do we show it? Why why are Christians often not perceived as grace-dispensing people? They're perceived as judgment-dispensing people. So I also found that 
things that I thought were over back in my childhood in the 60s, some of the things we were going through, the divisions, the uh, kind of anti-patriotism, the racial conflicts, these things were coming back in spades around us right now. And, and I see in the church, even I hear from pastors all over the place who say even something like the pandemic, which should bring people together and, and should show the church as a compassionate group of people who respond to the need around them, even that has caused more divisions, more strife. There's all sorts of different opinions on vaccine and masking and all that, and churches are being torn apart. Well, I know about churches being torn apart. I've got a lot of that in my background, and I just decided now's the time to tell the story. I'm 71 years old, and um, I've covered most of the major topics I wanted to write about. I wanted to give the backstory. So this is, it's different than any book I've, I've written. It's not an idea-driven book. It's a story-driven book. And I had good editors who kept me from making these asides and these comments that ruin memoirs, you know, that turned them into essays. It's just a story. And I, I now see that it was a gift that I had this unusual family and this extreme church in the middle of a chaotic time, the 1960s. And as I put it together, I kind of stitched my life together and stitched my career together at the same time. It, it became what I call a prequel to the books that I would ultimately write. Okay, we're going to continue our conversation with Philip Yancey in uh, just a second. And I want to invite you with your calls as well, because I think we're having a kind of conversation that maybe others have gone on a similar journey, or maybe you want to ask Philip Yancey questions about books you've read or about his own life experience. 877-548-3675 is our number. Again, it's 877-548-3675. We're talking with, with Philip Yancey about his new memoir, Road. We have more in just a moment. As believers in Jesus, we know our citizenship on earth is actually temporary, but the days can be challenging navigating a world in cultural decline. A.W. Tozer brings help and encouragement in his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. He tackles the how-to of confronting and battling worldliness while we live in anticipation of heaven. Be better equipped to take on each day. Read Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. Your copy is at moodypublishers.com. Hey, we're back at Stetzer Live, and we're continuing our conversation with Philip Yancey, having a really uh, super conversation because, well, at least for me and for Donna, who's listening, uh, because this is, uh, this Philip Yancey has been a part of our spiritual journey, I think, for many people as well. Let's go to our calls first. We're going to go to Marty in Nashville, Tennessee. Marty, you're live on the air. Go ahead with your question or your comment. Hey, uh, thanks a lot. Hey, Philip, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Marty. Hey, so I wanted to tell you a couple of things uh, off the top. I've appreciated your writing ministry over the years. Um, I've been a full-time and bivocational pastor, and mm. you've helped me uh, come out of some of my own legalistic uh, background, which I'll uh, expand on in just a second. But also thanks so much for your memoir. My wife and I read it within 48 hours. She read it first, and I read it second, and uh, we literally couldn't put it down. Um, it's only been out a week. Is, I'm uh, impressed, Marty. <laughs> dude, I'm telling you, as soon as I found out it was coming out, I put in the order, and 
as soon as it came in, I opened it and handed it to her and she started reading it. And as soon as she was finished, I started reading it. And it, it's a great book. It's very well written. Uh, your description of it as a story is spot on. So thanks for writing it. Well, and there are some parts that only uh, a Southerner would understand, right? <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, you and I grew up not far from each other. I grew up in Riverdale, uh, not far oh, from Hollywood. And yeah, recognize the names of the some of the churches that you mentioned. I went to church with folks that went to Colonial Hills Christian School. But there's even a deeper connection, and that is that your mom taught my dad and myself uh, in Bible college. My goodness. How about that? Yeah. So um, my dad is now 85, and I'm in my late 50s. So I'm between you uh, and uh, the, the next group that came along behind me. Um, but your your story resonated with me because uh, we were members of a church that went independent. I, if I called the name of it, you would recognize it, I'm sure. Um, that was connected to this same Bible college uh, as a supporting unit, I think. And so we went into this kind of independent fundamental uh, mindset for a while. Um, and it was actually your writing that helped me grow out of that. What's so amazing about grace and Jesus, I never knew especially. Uh, mm-hmm. were ones that helped me kind of, I, don't, I won't use the word deconstruct, but I will use the word detox. <laughs> kind of <for> detox. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and you helped me uh, through that. And uh, so I want to tell you that I appreciate that. I love your mom. She was, she was only gracious to me. Uh, but at the same time, I completely understand uh, the, the dichotomy and the ways that people experience different people. And so um, mm-hmm. I bless you for continuing to love her. I know she's still around. I saw uh, some kind of an update recently. Um, and so I, I'll say hello, Mrs. Yan- Ms. Yancey, if she's listening. Um, <laughs> There's but, a good uh, chance she is. She listens to Moody. And- do what? I said, uh, there's a good chance she is listening. She often listens to Moody, and she turned 97 back in May. So, Oh, my goodness. That is amazing. Well, good deal. Well, Marty, I'm good. Question, question or, or comment to, uh, to close our conversation with Philip? Um, Philip, what was the um, – so you mentioned Peter Ruckman. He was another guy I was introduced to at that same school but through the bookstore. Um, in your growing up, as you were navigating some of these waters, because face there was, I mean, there was some really egregious stuff that was taught in the name of scriptural truth, in the name of the Lord. Um, what was the thing that you, as far as like a, not the family so much, but as far as the teaching, what was the, the teaching that you had the hardest time disconnecting from that got you kind of out of legalism into a place of grace? Well, there were two things. The first thing was, you mentioned Peter Ruckman, and he taught racist doctrine, the whole curse of Pam theory that um, mm-hmm. people who are people of color were cursed by God, and they were to be, to be servants the rest of their lives. So they could never be a CEO of a company, never be president of the United States. Well, we've all seen that that was wrong. And <laughs> that, was a, that was a huge... Uh, feeling of betrayal. When I was assigned at a, in high school, I won a fellowship at the Center for Disease Control. It's called the Communicable Disease Center back then. And I knew my, my supervisor was a PhD from an Ivy League school in biochemistry. And I was so intimidated to meet him. And I walked into his office the first day. And he's a black man. He's African-American. Mm. And bells went off. I realized 
the church lied to me. The church told me that this could never happen, and here he is sitting in front of me, and and he became a friend. He was a wise and gentle counselor, and I realized that so many of those misconceptions about race were were blasphemous. They were just flat out wrong. Mm. And that started ask then I started asking, well maybe they lied about Jesus. Maybe they lied about mm-hmm. the Bible. Well I got through that, but I, I guess I would say that the worst problem that I took away from that church was a misrepresentation of who God is. Mm-hmm. I I came away with the idea of God as this scowling face in the sky just waiting to get somebody. And the title of this book, Where the Light Fell, as you know, Marty, since you've read it, comes from St. Augustine. And he said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on where the light fell. And that's what Mm -hmm. eventually brought me back to trace those rays to the sun. And for me, those things were simple things like the beauties of nature, which was my respite as as a troubled child, going in the walks in the woods. So nature, classical music, and romantic love. And when I experienced those things, I realized the church had misrepresented. If, if God is responsible for the, all these good things in the world, God is not that scowling face. God is a loving smile. And it took me a long time to come to that. But uh, that was probably the one thing that I came away with. And I, I guess I have to say, too, I look back with compassion on those days in the church. People were doing the best they can. And... I came away with many good things. I came away with uh, pretty unspoiled from things like cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, stuff like that. You know, there's an advantage to some legalism. And uh, I came away with a strong sense of discipline. Yeah, that's right. And uh, (laughs) also a a deep knowledge of the Bible. Those are great gifts. Mm -hmm. I, I am grateful for my background. The problem is not everybody survives. And yeah. and I told the story of my brother in there, who would consider himself an atheist today. He's, he's very insistent on that. And a lot of it was because of the wounds of the church, that misrepresentation of who God is. He never got over that, never got past it. Mm-hmm. Marty, hey, thank you so much for your call. And, uh, and, and, and what a neat thing that he read the book and the connection that's there. Um, you know, and I think that's a key thing that you, you mentioned, Philip, is—, is that not everyone survived it. And it appears that when you have sometimes um, a religious upbringing through some of the context that you talk about in the book, um, where, where you've been told, you've been lied about some things and you find out later, you know, you, to the example here is race, that it does, it does undermine the whole construct of what it may mean to you to be a Christian. And deconstruction is a huge conversation that we're having today. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's different? Why 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 is Philip Yancey not a deconstructed Christian? Maybe, maybe in some ways you want to. You, there are things that did change and deconstruct in your life. But what what's different about the journey you're on versus some who've walked away in after those hard circumstances? After growing up in a rather unhealthy church environment, I did I even called it a toxic church environment. I found I found healthy Christians. I went to Wheaton. That was kind of an eye-opening experience. There were wonderful, wonderful professors there, committed, godly people, men and women. And early on in my writing career, when I probably would not have been able to be the kind of writer I became, I latched onto this Dr. Paul Brand, who's the greatest man I've ever been around, who is 
wise and and humble and joyful and and was larger because of his faith was made larger he was a, an orthopedic surgeon who worked with leprosy patients in India, which is about as low as you can get people in the untouchable caste who have leprosy kicked out of their villages. And here was this man who had been asked to head up orthopedics at Stanford University and Oxford University, who turned that aside to work with, the, with some of these lowliest people on the planet. And yet he emerged with gratitude and humility and joy. And when it really only takes one person, Ed, who is living out the life of Jesus and to see the effects of what that looks like. Jesus said, uh, you don't find your life by acquiring more and more things. That's the American way. You find your life by giving it away in service to others. And in the process, you find your life. And I saw that with Dr. Brand. And I, in those days, I thought I wanted to be an investigative reporter, you know, people like Bob Woodard and Carl Bernstein were in the news every day. I wanted to be around people exposing evil. And I I did a few articles like that. And finally, I decided if you're going to take that route, you're going to be around jerks all day, (laughs) lawbreakers and corrupt people. Instead, I wanted to find people I wanted to be like, wanted to learn from. And so I did. I spent my life searching out people like a Frederick Buechner, Henry Now, and Annie Dillard. Uh, people that I profile in another book, Soul Survivor. These are the people I went to and explored as a journalist because I wanted to know what did they have that I can learn from and in what way can my faith be improved because of what I learned from these people. So in my, my answer would be I was able to latch on to some really healthy people, and over time uh, they became larger, and the memories of my childhood became smaller. Well, of course, in this in this memoir, I go back and <laughs> stitch them all together. And for the first time, I have a, a complete picture. I learned a lot in writing the memoir about myself. Uh, when you spend, it took me three years really to write this book, when you spend that much time just going over and trying to fit the pieces together, I, I learned how my personal journey affected the things I wrote about and the person I became. Yeah. About 30 seconds before we need to take a pause at the bottom of the hour. Tell, tell me a little bit about your knowledge of Jesus throughout that. Who who was, I mean, we know who Jesus is, but who was Jesus to you on that journey? About 30 seconds. Jesus was the Sunday school character that I grew up with, and, and I saw him as kind of a Captain Kangaroo type guy, but or Mr. Rogers would be better. But I later found he was a radical who was so elusive and brilliant and hard to pin down. I never got tired of exploring who Jesus was. Continue our conversation with Philip Yancey, 877-548-3675. We're back at Setzer Live. Um, my name is Ed Setzer. I lead the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. My guest today is Philip Yancey. Um, while working occasionally, his connection to Wheaton College, just because it makes me smile. But um, I think the best part of the interview thus far was me asking Philip Yancey to explain who Jesus was in 30 seconds, which was just before the break. The and that was super fun. <laughs> <laughs> because you did write a whole book, you know, The Jesus I Never Knew. So I'm going to give you time to expand on that more. But you did kind of in that brief journey, which is what I kind of was hoping, you talked a bit about from the caricature of who Jesus was in your childhood 
to ultimately understanding um, you know, understanding who Jesus was and why that matters. So let's talk about this a second, because that's, that is also in, in the new book, Where the Light Fell. It is, again, the full title is uh, a memoir, Light, with, with, Light, with Light Fell, a memoir, and it's, of course, a memoir of Philip Yancey. And it's just brand new out. It just came out this past week, and you can pick it up right now. But a big part of that is your journey and your struggle with understanding who Jesus rightly was. You wrote a whole book on that as well. So tell us more than the 30-second answer. Who is Jesus and why does that matter? I was going through adolescence in high school during the 60s, and my mind was was being cracked open, frankly. I grew up in a fairly sheltered area, and then suddenly I became aware of global poverty and racism and injustice and uh, exploitation of women and all these issues that were huge in the 60s and are huge again now in many ways. And what I found was that that Jesus had anticipated all those things. Funny thing, he, he's the Son of God, so he, he knows. And, and when I studied the Gospels, it seemed like all of Jesus' stories had the wrong guy as a hero, the wrong person. So he told a story about the Good Samaritan, not the good Jewish rabbi. He told a story about the disobedient, the prodigal son, not the not the obedient son. He told a story about a beggar, Lazarus, didn't tell us the rich man's name. He's always he's always taking the surprising point of view. And when you look at it carefully, he's taking the point of view of the people who are in need. And that simple little story about the the tax collector praying in the temple. There's a tax collector who's viewed as a sinner, and then there's a rabbi, or or Levite at least. And one, the tax collector prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the religious figure prays this very eloquent prayer, I'm glad I'm not that like that tax collector over there. And Jesus says, who, who will God listen to? What prayer matters? And always... Jesus responds with grace to those who have their hands outstretched. Hmm. It's a gift. It's a free gift of God, but it only comes to people who are receiving it. If you have your hands pulled tight in a fist and somebody gives you a present, it's going to fall to the ground. And religious people in his day, and maybe in our day too, were more likely to say, well, I'm better than those people. I've, I've made it. I'm holier than those other people. And Jesus would always go to the needy ones who recognized their need and had their hands outstretched. And it took me a long time to realize I was one of the neediest of all. I thought uh, things were going fine. I thought I was superior to some of these other people. And I realized that was a sign of my need. And only if I had my hands outstretched could I receive God's grace. That's one of the things I learned from Jesus, not just in his parables, but in the kinds of people he attracted. So he was accused of being around tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And, and that was his reputation. And if you read the gospels, those are the people who sought him out, the people who were foreigners, who were immigrants, the Samaritans, the heretics, those with leprosy, those with disabilities. They're the ones who flocked to Jesus. The good religious folks were stroking their beards thinking, what do we, what do we do with this guy? He's not from the right place. He didn't go to the right schools, you know, and that's a real lesson for us. It's a, it's a lesson that the church has sometimes failed to heed. I, I wonder what churches are attracting those kinds of people. Jesus didn't approve of their behavior, but somehow they sensed in him 
I've got a solution to my unmet needs. I, like you said to the woman at the well, this is water that will satisfy you, not the kind of water you've been drinking. And that was a shock to me because I had just seen Jesus as this kind of goody Sunday school teacher type, a Mr. Rogers guy. And there is an mm-hmm. aspect of him, certainly, and caring for children and, and caring for the marginalized. But there's a radical aspect, too, that shocked me and got my attention. Yeah, talk about that in the Jesus I Ever Knew. And, and again, reflects also in Where the Light Fell. And I do want to encourage people to uh, pick up a copy. Found it found it fascinating as well. But let, let's go to our calls. Uh, and let me invite others to call as well. We're talking to Philip Yancey about his new memoir, really, which basically means we're talking about his life and his journey. Our number is 877-548-3675. Again, that's 877-548-3675. Let's go to Carol in Galesburg, Illinois. I think it is. Carol, you're live on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I just wanted to thank you for your books. Um, I just find them so positive, but there's one that stood out for me that um, I think is an interesting story. I spoke at my sister's wedding, and that book is Church, Why Bother? I spoke Mm -hmm. at her wedding um, um, in about August of 1992. Okay, fine. It was a great experience at that LaSalle Street Church, okay? So I met the pastor. I didn't get to meet any of the congregation because it was like on a Saturday, you know, so I didn't get that aspect of it. And so later, I'm reading your book, you know, years later, church, and it was about that church. How crazy. <laughs> it was so actually, fun learning more about the church where my sister got married and I got to speak. I mean, it was just a building to me. I just read Bible verses and, you know, talked a little bit and everybody was really happy with me. Uh, it's just for me, it was a great, um, I don't know, time for me. And then people, you know, complimented me afterwards and that pastor, man, he was great. So do you remember mm-hmm. what year you wrote that? Because I'm wondering if the pastor in your book is the same one that I got to talk to. I, I don't remember what year I wrote that. Um, I left Chicago in 1992, though. So I had been attending that church for 13 years or so, and then we moved to Colorado. So I was probably gone by the time you got there. Um, that was a church as close to an ideal church for me that I've experienced. I've been through all sorts of churches, and I write about some negative ones and where the light fell. But LaSalle Street Church was put down smack in the middle of the poorest section of Chicago at the time, Cabrini-Green housing area, and the richest section, the, the Gold Coast right along Lake Michigan. And it brought together people with resources, doctors, PhD candidates, you know, people like that flocked to this church because it was it was just a, a good church. And then at the same time, the people who were being ministered to in the Cabrini Green, my wife ran a senior citizens program because they were getting so much from the church, they would show up and they would fill those first few rows. So it, it was a great ethnic mixture, racial mixture, and you never knew what was going to happen there. I taught a Sunday school class for eight years, went all the way through the gospel, started Genesis, and we called it stutter step through the Bible <laughs> rather than walk through the Bible, because we would spend uh, you know months on a book like Jeremiah, but cover Leviticus in one or two Sundays. <laughs> it was it wasn't very uh, systematic, but it was the kind of place where you could I could stand up and say. I know I'm supposed to believe this. I'm having a really hard time right now. Can you help me as a teacher? 
and not get banned, you know, not get kicked out of the church. It was a, it was a grace-filled place that brought all sorts of classes and types of people together, and I've never found anything since to to match it. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my faculty at uh, the Wheat College Grad School where I serve is uh, went there probably around the same time you did. It was a while ago, and uh, you know there's there are some relationships that go back to Moody Church for a while where I used to serve right. and, uh, as the interim. So uh, fascinating. Uh, history that's there. Carol, thank you so much for your call. If you'll stay on the line, Carol, our producer is going to jump on and give you a copy of Where the Light Fell. Um, and I, I didn't give one to Marty because he already said he had one. So, um, so right. I, you know, shared it already. Uh, but, but if you'll hang on the line, uh, Carol, I want to give you a copy of that as, as well. And so and we're going to, too, we're going to continue our conversation with Philip Yancey. We have one more segment remaining and want to invite you to call in with your questions, your comments, 877-548-3675 is our number. That's 877-548-3675. And we're going to talk a little bit about, he says in this, this is uh, the book he was meant to write. And we're going to talk about what that means and more with your calls. Again, 877-548-3675 here on Ed Setzer Live with Philip Nancy. Hey, we're back. Um, Ed Setzer Live. We've got one final segment with Philip Yancey. We're talking about um, his his really fascinating uh, memoir, Where the Light Fell. And um, and I'm going to ask one question. I'm going to go right to the calls uh, as well. Just before the break, I, I mentioned that I that I wanted to you know specifically ask you a bit in and around what it means. You say this is a book you were meant to write. What what, what does that mean? It, it does. You mentioned earlier kind of a prequel to your other books, which it does kind of explain a lot, but tell us why this is a book you're meant to write. All a writer has is a unique point of view, unique set of circumstances that formed him or her into the person they became. And later, now, as I've been looking back on my life, I realized it was pretty unusual. And I learned some theological things rather early. I mentioned in an earlier segment that my father died when I was 13 months old. Well, the story there was that he was planning to be a missionary in Africa. He was, had a dramatic conversion in the Navy, got some Bible training, seminary training, and wanted to be a missionary. They were well on their way. They had thousands of people ready to pray for them, support them. And then he got polio, contracted polio, which was the great pandemic back in the 1950s. And he was severely paralyzed. He couldn't move anything, really, his neck a little bit could not even breathe on his own. So he was put in an iron lung at a charity hospital in Atlanta for two months. He didn't get good, very, very good care. He could never get a good night's sleep because the machines were noisy. And of course, he's lying there all day doing nothing but looking at the ceiling, couldn't read a book. There were no televisions. Miserable exist existence. And he, as well as the people who were praying for him, became convinced that he would be healed. Why would God possibly in air quotes, take a person with the kind of potential that he had as a missionary. So they finally became convinced that he would be healed, that God would heal him. They prayed that way, and they took a radical step of removing him from the iron lung against medical advice and transferring him to a chiropractic center down the road. At first, things looked better. He was sleeping through the night. He seemed to be getting a little bit of movement back. And he was celebrated in the newspapers. There was an, I have a clipping from the Atlanta Constitution 
that showed a picture of him in this hospital, smiling, being fed by my mother, doing a little better. But I looked at the date of the newspaper, and it was nine days before he died. Wow. I was an adult when I found that out, actually. This was a secret that I hadn't known. But what happened was a theological error. There were people who loved him, wanted the best for him, wanted him to be healed, but they took a prerogative that they didn't really have. They decided what God's will was, and they turned out to be wrong. What we believe has major consequences, in this case a fatal consequence, because they misinterpreted reality, misinterpreted what their role was, what God's role is. And the rest of my life, Ed, I've been trying to separate people who speak for God and people who think they speak for God, mm-hmm. trying to separate out people who say this is what the Bible says from what the Bible really says. I was given a pretty extreme form of religion, that uh, of Christian religion, that made sense to me as a child, but later I found out it was a house of cards. There were many things that were just flat out wrong. And that set me up to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what is the truth here? It's not that. So what is it? And I guess that's why I think this is a book I was put on earth to write because it explains the struggle behind what I've already set out in my, in my idea driven books. It shows not just what I came to believe, but why and how I came to believe it. Mm. Yeah, and it is. I mean, it's deeply personal. I guess that's. I mean, that's the definition of a memoir. But yeah, um, right. what what what's sort of strange though is those of us who. I mean, I don't know that you and I have. You know, we've never sat down had a conversation, you know, other than an interview, and yet I feel like I know you from your books. You know, as an author, when I write mm-hmm. something, I'm. It's also bringing part of me. So there's been parts of you that I've understood you know I, what's so amazing got grace you clearly would see was a reaction to reaction is the wrong term was a response to the fundamentalism uh and you, you know the legalism that's there and and i could go on and on the the, the examples are are many um you know whereas god when it hurts clearly man, that was so meaningful to me as after i lost my sister to a, a rare form of can- cancer and and yet i could know i could feel your pain and then this book sort of is a bit like this is the explainer that that though all your books stand on their own, or else millions of people wouldn't have read them, but all your books stand on their own. But now it's sort of like the, as you said, the prequel that helps to place them all together. I almost want to put a timeline and say, oh, I get this part of the journey and this mm-hmm. part of the journey. So I'm deeply thankful for for you you writing it. What do you hope that people will take from the book? They'll read this and this, other than... You know, those of us who your books have been in, uh, you know, I was listening to some music recently and said it was kind of the soundtrack of my teenage years. Yours is a soundtrack of my spiritual journey. Uh, that was meaningful <laughs> to me. But but what would it what would it what do you hope it accomplishes as people read the memoir? When I started writing this memoir, it, it's a new form. I've never written a memoir before. So I I read I went to the library and checked out every memoir they had. And over several years, I, I read about 300 memoirs. Some were great, some were mediocre, and some were terrible. But every time in every book, there was something that sparked a memory that I would not have recalled had I not read that particular memoir. And I learned that when you read a memoir, it's not just to learn about the person that you're reading about, 
maybe you want to know if it's a famous person, but I mean, who cares about some of the details of my life, how I learned to read, what my dogs were like. This isn't important, but what happens is a good memoir will will strike a, like a harmonic chord in the reader. And my situation is unlike your situation, unlike anybody who's who's going to read my book. Nobody has had my exact shared experience of the church and my parents and all of that. But but the more specific I can be, the more compelling I can be, then it sparks that chord in the reader and they think, well, my church wasn't wrong on this issue that he's describing, but it was wrong on that issue. What have I done about that? And what do I believe now? And I've still got these wounds from childhood. They're different than Philip's wounds, but what have I done with them? How have they shaped me? Am I still attracted to them? Am I still working them through? And that's what I hope this book accomplishes, because there's a lot of toxic faith out there, and there's a lot of just kind of mediocre faith out there. And I've I've been able to spend my life really searching authentic faith. And I hope that the process of that I've gone through, and this mostly tells the struggle that I've gone through, the other books tell where I ended up, but I hope that this story gives people, gives readers the freedom to discover themselves and deal in their own way with the issues that I had to deal with in my way. Yeah. So good. Um, we do have a bunch of callers, but we're kind of running out of time. So I'm going to ask a couple of the questions. Uh, one person, uh, Jane, using air quotes, uh, wanted to ask, how do you respond when so- to someone in a gracious way when they just kind of slap a verse on everything? How do you help people think more Christianly, biblically, and more rather than just kind of those, those, uh, those quick responses? Uh, it depends on what verse they're slapping on me. Um, <laughs> as a writer... What I'll often say is, you know, you have to really be careful when you take one sentence out of a out of a book. If you'd looked at one of my books and chose one sentence and said, "Here's the answer," it's not that simple. <laughs> you got to read the whole book, and and I'll say that about the Bible. Just you've probably read some of Kate Bowler's work, this sure. wonderful woman at at. Um, Duke University, and she wrote this book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Been Told, or something like that. Right. And right. she she explains, actually, I think she's got a, a good handle on how to handle people like that, because she got it all the time when she got stage four cancer, and people had these easy answers and easy solutions for her. And they just, they were not only not helpful, they were actually cruel. And it's something that we Christians easily fall down on. we we reduce our faith to these little slogans. You notice Jesus never did that. People would ask him a question. He never gave them a slogan. He would usually tell them a story or throw the question right back to them. And you could just study how Jesus responds to the people who come up with, come up to him with these little simple slogans and answers. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for not being driven by simple slogans and answers, but helping us to think uh, deeply about biblical truth, about the Christian life, and more. We've been talking to Philip Yancey. Thank you so much for your call. Sorry we didn't get to everybody today. I, I probably asked too many questions because I'm particularly enthusiastic. Uh, I've been challenged by the writing of writings of Philip Yancey as well. But again, thanks for listening to Ed Stetzer Live. Thanks for having uh, staying with us with Philip Yancey. You can listen to this program again at edstetzerlive.com. Let me thank my team behind the scenes here at Moody Radio, Karen Hendren, uh, my producer, my engineer, Courtney Young, and Eric Tidwell was on the phones today. Tune in next week. I'm going to talk to 
uh, Christian writer, producer, actually comedian, Dan Ruppel is going to join me. We're talking about how he uses the national stage to showcase his faith throughout his career. Uh, as always, you can find us on social media at, at, at Stetzer Live, all the different social medias. And uh, we're a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.